Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 225, and I had a conversation with Dr. Erin McDonald. She's an astrophysicist. Uh, she's a science consultant for Star Trek, which is way cool. She's a writer, a voice actor. She calls herself a tattooed Slytherin N7 rebel from Starfleet. So you know she's badass just from that self-describer. She is friends with my friend Trevor. Trevor was on Hey Human episode 176. He's the paleontologist. So definitely check out that episode as well if you haven't heard it yet. Um, But yeah, he said you should talk to Erin. She's great. And he did not lie. She's fantastic. So very excited for this. Uh, Can't wait for you to hear all the things that we philosophize upon and all the science things. And and she's, I'm just... You know, when I talk to somebody like Dr. McDonald, it it makes me rethink my whole existence. I think, oh man, what if I had gone into physics? What if I had been an astrophysicist? What if, you know, time travel was real? What you know, it's the kind of things that keep you up all night. Uh, any aliens out there listening, you know, if if you're looking for a human to to take off into the stars, just you know, just show up, say hi. Don't scare the crap out of me. Don't need that. But I'm a pretty amiable gal to the idea of interstellar space travel. Let's do it. Some other stuff going on. My dear friend and oftentimes collaborator, Sammy Plotkin, he's an incredible performing songwriter. He and I wrote a song under the band name Muskrats, M-U-S-C-R-A-T-Z. And if you go to muskrats.com or find Muskrats on YouTube, you will find the song that he and I wrote and the video that he and I made to inspire people to get out to vote. And I hope you go check that out. Uh, Also, I was interviewed on a podcast called The Fearless Storyteller with Ethan Freckleton. And it was a blast to do. He asked me a bunch of questions about uh, writing and painting and a little bit about the podcast, but mostly about the creation process, the, the creative process, and what it's like to be a storyteller. And I had a lot of fun doing it, and you can check that out uh, on all the podcast places. And also, he does his visually as well, so you can go check that out on YouTube under The Fearless Storyteller. Let's get to the usual stuff. Social media, Hey Human Podcast is on Facebook and Instagram. You can find my personal social media under Susan Ruthism, and that's Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, you can check out my art and any kind of acting things, painting, that music stuff at susanruth.com. You can also sign up for the mailing list there at susanruth.com. If you check out heyhumanpodcast.com, you're going to find the links page. Every episode of this show has its own section with links from the show, stuff we talk about, stuff that inspires me as I'm doing research after the fact. Whatever it is, I try and stick really cool stuff in that section. Also on the website, you're going to find the merch page. Yes, it's true. Hey Human finally has a merch page. You can get Hey Human hats or Hey Human pants or Hey Human shirts or, you know, well, you get the idea. Hey Human book bag. Do it. Be super cool. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you'd like to contribute to help keep Hey Human going and alive and all the good things, uh, that contribute page is also on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. Super excited about this episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. Let's get into it. No further ado, ado, ado. Here we go. I'm really nice to, uh, it's really nice to meet you. I'm glad we were able to do this. I know, I'm super excited. <laughs> Good, I'm glad, me too. Now, is that a picture behind you or is that, are you really in San Francisco? <laughs> I'm not in San Francisco. This is a green screen. Okay. <laughs> it's a very good one. I can't do them on mine because uh, my technology is too old, so it doesn't do the thing. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I set up the, uh, hang on. This is, yeah, this is what it normally looks like. That's <laughs> very cool. I love it. That's my Starfleet office. <laughs> Fantastic. I've been, uh, I went started at the beginning of Voyager and have been going through it. Janeway is such a badass. She's so great. I love her so much. <laughs> I was reading an article about how in the fourth season they brought in uh, Seven of Nine, Jerry Ryan, and that it caused this whole big, I, it, it almost made me mad. I thought, you know what? They didn't. I get it. I get how TV works and they want some super hot you know, person, and I get that, but right. Janeway was super hot. She's the epitome of smart girl hot. Exactly. I totally agree. Yeah, they take off all of her Starfleet clothes, which are badass, and then they put her in regular clothes, like the one where she had the towel and, and she and Chicote were on the. I was right. like, damn, girl is smoking. Also, Chicote is smoking hot too. I was like, please have sex on screen right now. I want to watch that. <laughs> I know. God bless fan fiction, right? Oh my gosh. I wanted it so bad. That is so funny. Have you? My favorite episode is Counterpoint. I don't know if you've got there yet, but. Which um, season is that in? That's the one where there's the alien species that comes and that guy is like the bad guy and then the, he said he claims to defect. And, and oh, there's like. That a one thing. Yet. Oh, enjoy. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I haven't dug into the deep, you know, all the different uh, eras of Star Trek, really. I grew up madly in love with both Spock and Picard. My first crush, Excellent taste. Yeah, my first crush was Spock and Carl Sagan. Yeah. Those were my two first loves. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> nobody, nobody can rock a turtleneck like Carl Sagan. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love it. He's undefeated in turtleneck hair. Yeah, and Spock can rock some tight pants, I'll tell you. (laughs) You know, it's funny when when celebrities die, you know, I think, okay, well, they died. But there are a handful that I cried. And when when Spock died, when Leonard Nimoy died, I cried. I was so sad. I get that. That's why I actually got this after he died. This is Live Long and Prosper in Vulcan. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so. You have a ton Thanks. of tattoos. How many are you rocking? I've lost track. It's around 25, but like I'm doing a piece sleeve here. I actually just got Voyager. I think you can see that. Yeah, Voyager a couple months ago. But That's Beautiful. Thanks. That's some time that takes to do all that, I bet. Yes. Yeah. It's just, uh, I, when I kind of, when I turned 18 then it was kind of non, it was a little out of control for a while. And then it was like, all right, I have no rush. Let's <laughs> just get them one at a time. And yes, I get good. that. I have one. I used to have two, but the second one got so muddy over time that I ended up lasering it off. It was on my back of my neck okay. and they don't gotcha. tell you that your lymphatic system 
basically turns neck tattoos to mush over time. Which that's is pretty crazy, cool in it? its own right, but still. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I think that's really cool. Anyway, enough about that. Dr. Aaron no McDonald, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, this is great. Um, I'm excited. I honestly, I've been I've been stepping up my reading game and everything in preparation uh, so I could at least have a, a somewhat coherent conversation. <laughs> Science, I have loved science ever since I was little. And again, I grew up on on Star Trek with my dad. I mean, I have these great memories of sitting in his lap and, and watching Star Trek. And then also watching, you know, the original Star Trek with my brother and uh, having to race to set the table uh, before during the commercials, before the Klingons could get us, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, so, amazing. Yeah, and they're just such lovely memories. And going back and watching... And, I, and we're not going to talk about Star Trek, but I just had to get this out. Watching uh, Voyager this past couple weeks, um, and then seeing the state of the world, which of course is always in a in a place of chaos and ordered chaos. That I wish I had even made a post about this on social media. That I wish that they had taught Star Trek in school because it really personifies all the characteristics of a noble life. It, it talks yeah. about philosophy and science and mathematics and, and uh, you know, uh, they, they talk about sexism and xenophobia and, like, all this stuff. It's so fantastic. And curiosity and intellect. and Yeah. You know, I really think, I do think that that's why Star Trek has the lasting legacy that it does. Because it really created a world, you know, it, our, our world right now is very turbulent and scary and uncertain. And we have to remember, too, that, like, the late 1960s were also like that. And so I think that that, that has carried through throughout generations to just have something to turn to and to look towards. And yeah, I think a lot of us hold it very close to our hearts. And I, I to understand what a visionary Gene Roddenberry was, you know, and well, just, uh, risky oh. and yeah, challenging yeah. and all of that. So yeah. the, the boundaries that he broke through in, in his, which of course is that irony of the reflection of breaking through boldly right. going where now no one, <laughs> not just no man, Yikes. but no one has gone before. I love it. Oh. So good. Anyway, so good. let's get to the horrendous space kablooey. So you are an astrophysicist. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yep. Which is so cool. Uh, talk about your, your coming up in the world uh, and who you are as a person, and then we'll get into the fun, sciencey things. Awesome. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really interesting because getting into science and getting into astrophysics was a bit of an indirect journey for me because I kind of, I grew up very creative and I also grew up very passionate about science that I was a dancer. And then I was also just, you know, obsessed with space and dinosaurs. I think like a lot of people were growing up in the nineties, you know, we were blessed to have things like Jurassic Park and the X-Files and all of these things that continue to spark imagination beyond that eight-year-old. So once you start to get into that like rebellious sort of preteen phase and watch the scary movies that you're now allowed to watch and the scary shows that you're now allowed to watch, um, that could carry on that enthusiasm. And so that's exactly what happened for me. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of studies about the Scully effect and about how a lot of women who, you know, are my age 
grew up watching the X-Files and ended up going into science. And that absolutely, you know, I fall into that category for sure. Dana Scully was a huge inspiration for me. And honestly, like every chance I had to redirect my life and my career when I wasn't certain, it was very much a what would Scully do situation. (laughs) I just said, all right, I'm afraid of needles. Scully wouldn't be afraid of needles. Like, let's get out of that you know what would what what life decision would scully make now uh between dance and physics well if i want to be dana scully then i i'll go study physics and i can keep dance on the side (laughs) so all these little life decisions that i made um going forward kind of sent me into that career and once i honestly once i learned in high school that you could literally just go to college and continue studying space that I didn't really have a view beyond that. I just found that really interesting, that whole aspect that I could dedicate the next four years of my life to just learning more about space. And just the title astrophysicist sounds really cool. So that was (laughs) not insignificant driver of that as well. Um, But yeah, so I, you know, but I struggled kind of beyond that. I, I wasn't fully satiated with the science part when I had finished my undergrad because I struggled as a student academically when it came to the homework and exams and that aspect. But I got through. But what I loved was the research. I really loved operating telescopes, looking at data, solving universe problems that people hadn't solved before. And that kind of drove me to go into graduate school and, and um, you know, we can, we can get into more detail if you want, but I moved overseas. I, I did a different program, a little bit of a non-traditional path. Again, really kind of driven with the fact of like, okay, I don't know if I want to be a professor, but I know I want to go get a PhD now. So let's go do that <laughs> and let's figure out the right way to get that done. And then we'll figure things out. And, and kind of since then, you know, I'm like a one woman career panel for what you can do with an astrophysics degree. <laughs> Finally landed on the right job. <laughs> you do a lot of things. You are a consultant for the Star Trek shows and other science fiction as well. Yes. Yeah. Moving out to L.A. that, that you know, um, so I just really briefly, I'll take you on the short path of where, where I went, but I finished my Ph.D. I did one postdoc, which is sort of a, a temporary research assignment all researchers do before you get a professor semi-permanent position. Um, So I did one postdoc, really decided, yeah, nope, academia is not for me. It's cool, but that's not kind of the life that I'm looking for. So I moved back to the States. I taught at community college. I taught at science museums. I was giving sort of more informal informal science education through sci-fi conventions. And that's kind of what led me down the path I am now. Um, But then I also started um, because being an adjunct professor at community college does not pay your bills. So I kind of through not necessarily wanting more through necessity went into aerospace engineering. That was a tricky path all in itself, but I found that I did have the strengths for that and I was very good at it. And so I did aerospace engineering for a while and then, you know, personal and professional drove me out here to LA, continued working as an aerospace engineer up until this year. And now I'm, now I'm working kind of full-time as a science consultant and uh, sort of moving more into the entertainment writer industry. And I love it. It's like, I finally, finally figured it out. There's tons of, of writers that are putting together television and and film that don't have a whole lot of science background, but like you and like me grew up adoring those types of 
science fiction stories, but they don't have the <clears throat> the grasp and understanding of, of necessarily the deep stuff that they're talking about. Right. And, you know, it's not, there are, in, you know, incredibly smart people running oh, science sure. fiction shows and writing science fiction. It's more of just the case of like, hey, can you just spot check this? Or, you know, this is, we know of this, but we don't know the details and something that you can focus on for the day while we focus on the rest of the story. And then you can answer all those questions for us. We're good. So that's, that's kind of where I fall in there. Do you go crazy when you watch something that is inaccurate science? If people, if, even if it's like, even if it's not accurate, but if, even if it's just playing with science in a, in an attempt to be accurate sort of way, I lose my brain. It's, and especially when it's not expected, you know, I think that the, um, I watch, uh, the new Voltron series on Netflix. They weirdly explain wormholes faster than light travel, time dilation, time dilation, which blew my mind really well. And so when it comes from unexpected places and they get it right, yeah, I, I'm complete fangirl over that. It's just the greatest yeah, moment. I, mean, I can understand <laughs> that. I get excited when people know the difference between your and your. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's the little things sometimes. It's just the little things, yes. <laughs> Did you grow up in a science family or were you weird? <laughs> <laughs> um, a little bit. Um, so yeah, my dad was a scientist. My dad's an atmospheric scientist, but he, you know, he wasn't a professor. I wasn't immersed in that world that he was very much sort of more the engineering consulting corporate side of things, but very smart man. Yeah. PhD in meteorology. And, um, I ended up learning more about clouds than I really ever cared to. So <laughs> we always had that battle about atmosphere versus space. But yeah, so I did have that encouragement, at least, and that, you know, support for going into the science. My mom's a writer and a librarian. And shout out. Sorry, just shout out to librarians, no, everyone. Absolutely. Echo that. Shout out to librarians. They're fantastic. And um, so growing up with you know, PhD in meteorology and a librarian, writer, mom, I did have that environment uh, to fulfill both the creative and the scientific. However, where I wasn't educated <laughs> to the extent I would have liked was in science fiction and the entertainment industry that that I had no necessarily exposure to. It was just through my uncle who loved science fiction that got me into all of that. And that, you know, I found that that really is in my soul more than anything else. And I think that that is why I struggled so much to try to find out what I wanted to do, because that was never something that I was raised around. Yeah, I my my family is obsessed with science fiction. So <clears throat> grew up with those kinds of books and that kind of conversation. And I think that awesome. there is certainly this used to be my first date question when I would go on dates back in in the pre-COVID days. Uh, before, <laughs> before times, before times, uh, that if an alien species you know approached you and said, "Come with us," would you go? And I was often surprised how many times people would say no. And I thought, man, I would like I have a bag packed already. <laughs> I mean, I the I, my love for this franchise has gone back and forth, but I think Doctor Who has been there for me many times because of that idea that someone can just show up and take you on an adventure and you get to go see the universe and that blows my mind. That can be very comforting sometimes. Do you have a favorite Doctor Who? I do. Um, so the ninth Doctor is my favorite, Chris Christopher Eccleston. Um, I ship nine and Rose so hard. Like they're, they're my one true pairing <laughs> after Mulder and Scully. But honestly, like I, 
I love him. I love him, but I love the, so nine and 10, David Tennant as well. Did I get those numbers right? I screwed up the numbers on like my Audible series on sci-fi and I'm, that's cursed me forever. It's cursed me forever. So I second guess myself every time I talk about doctors now. <laughs> and I saw in your bio that you call yourself a Slytherin. Let's get into that for a second. Okay. <laughs> We're going to so, get to science, I promise, but I just want to get this, this is, one. So. <laughs> this is great. I love this. Um, yeah, yeah. So not having grown up with science fiction and hearing people like your stories of growing up watching, you know, Star Trek and sharing that with your family. I, that's amazing. I never, ever had that. I never was able to share the stuff I was really passionate about with my family. And so that is so precious and amazing to me. Um, but I did have Harry Potter. I <laughs> uh, just grew up at that prime Harry Potter generation where we had the books through junior high, high school, and through into college. And it's hard to convey now to, you know, kids who are reading them and, and are passionate about them. I'm like, dude, we didn't know. Four years, I had notebooks speculating what was going to happen. And I will admit my love for Slytherin was driven by Snape before Alan Rickman played him. I know Alan Rickman drove uh, a lot of people to Snape, rightfully. <laughs> but he, he was my favorite character from book three on once you learned like he was bullied in school and you got a little bit of that backstory into who he is i just latched on and i did not like go like give me a byronic hero any day of the week we talk about snake oh, he's oh. so heathcliff oh my god <laughs> he is so heathcliff he is so rochester the phantom the beast like please these, those are my those are my yeah. people <laughs> and i always say that i am uh i am one part slytherin and then, the, you know, the rest, of course, I'm Gryffindor. I, I just, I, I do identify with the Gryffindor, but I have this Slytherin side. <laughs> and that's okay. And that's what I did learn to embrace. That even though Snape kind of got me in that door, that's when I realized where I was like, oh, no, this, I actually fit really well in this house. This idea of, like, ambition and drive and commitment and just... I think it's really the ambition and loyalty aspect that it's just, I will do anything and, you know, crawl my way to the top. <laughs> I like being in charge and that, you know, don't, don't mess with my peers, man. And I had, when I was working in aerospace engineering, I was a manager. And once I got into that leadership role and I had a great group sort of just, you know, maybe five, eight years younger than me. So kind of just a little bit behind in their careers. I just took them in and looked after them. And at one point, one of my employees was like, I really like having a Slytherin as a manager. <laughs> like, <laughs> get stuff done. Isn't that so funny? <laughs> I have this great memory of being in Seattle and being on the metro uh, going into work and uh, reading book six and being absolutely absorbed. And at one point looking up and every, and this isn't hyperbole, every single person on the bus was reading the book as well. Wow. That's awesome. And, wow, this really is one of those things, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's a cultural phenomenon that, that transcends its creator, which I think is now something that we've also had to grapple with a lot. The human to behind this, this extraordinary book. that It's like Orson, Orson Scott Card, who's yeah. you know, not the nicest person in the world, but Ender's Game is mind-blowing. 
Yeah. And I think it's something that, you know, as fans, we, we reconcile with, and I've, you know, tried to figure out myself how I want to, what my relationship with that fandom and that world is going to mean to me going forwards. And I think it's just committing, you know, continuing to commit to trans rights and for younger generations, you know, my partner has kids who are in their early teens and just talking to them about it. And they're Harry Potter fans and just saying like, look, I will loan you and donate and give you all my Harry Potter crap. Like, <laughs> you have it all, you know, but you know, I'm going to be conscious about where my money goes in the future and just have the conversation about trans yeah. rights or human rights. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. I'm always surprised when an author is writing about uh, what feels like such hope and, and doesn't, and, and speaks to bullying all this stuff. And then in their own personal life is willing to exclude certain people. I just, it, it, but again, we have to look at the art and the human is, is separate. Right. And I think the hardest thing is knowing how many people Harry Potter had helped, particularly in the LGBTQ community. Like it's that it was a lifeline for so many people for so many reasons that, you know, it's hard to just step away from that. And so for people in that community, it's really suffering. It's really hard to, yeah. to rationalize all of that right now. So it's something yeah. we're all working on, but. Well, we Absolutely. got this. Absolutely. It, man, <laughs> there's always a twist, isn't there? A plot twist. Always a plot twist. Why? <laughs> okay, so you, got, were you drawn to your field of study? Uh, so your thesis was on gravitational waves. Yep. And did you, was that something particularly that you thought, well, this is this weird anomaly this you know einstein's idea i'm gonna i'm gonna go out and find it kind of i think the adventure or was it more this is such an interesting mathematical problem yeah it's so funny how you end up in these weird research fields because it is so specialized once you get to that point and for me it was partly necessity and continuing to try to pursue what I was interested in. So when I started studying astronomy and astrophysics, it was just space is cool. And then you start narrowing it down and you start figuring out like what you actually like. And I liked stuff on the galaxy level. I liked the black holes, the super big collisions, the supernovas. And But other people are interested in planets and star formation. Like everyone's kind of drawn to different things but we also need to work. <laughs> so I, um, you know, my first research job in astronomy as an undergrad was doing radio astronomy. Wasn't top of my list for something to do, but it ticked the boxes of like, all right, I get to use a telescope. That's cool. Um, I get to try to, and I was literally working on just finding cold and I'm being a little bit when I'm talking about it. I don't mean to be. It's just it wasn't necessarily top of my interest, but I was searching for cold hydrogen clouds in the local universe. Grand scale stuff, and um, but very good as an entree into, into astrophysics. And so when I started looking at grad school research, um, I figured, okay, well now like I'm a radio astronomer. Okay, <laughs> like now that's what I got to do. And so I was- Explain to people what that means. 
Gotcha. So yeah. uh, when we talk about astronomy, we have until very recently always observed the universe in the electromagnetic spectrum. So we talk about the electromagnetic spectrum that includes visual, it includes what we can see with our eyes, but it extends all the way down to these like low energy radio waves all the way up into that ultraviolet X-ray and gamma ray. So there's this whole spectrum and they're all different energies and different processes in space give off different spectrum of light just think of like how predator can see in the infrared right when predator looks at space they're going to see something slightly different than what we see um and so i was working in this very low frequency radio wave those big radio dishes like arecibo you can do ground-based observing with those so that's kind of where i was focused and you typically are looking for like clouds, galaxies, cold stuff, not the really super exciting stuff that I necessarily really wanted to get into. Um, and that's, but that's what I was doing research in. But I also had my degree, I did a dual major halfway through college. I added on a second major in mathematics because once I got through kind of Calc 3, it all started to come together. It was like I was speaking a language and I loved it. I loved math. It became very natural to me, which it had never been before. It was like breaking through. And I honestly, you know, compare it to speaking a language. Once you can have that conversation with native speakers, it's, that's, you've crossed over and you feel very confident. And um, there's still more to learn, but, <laughs> you know, at least you feel like you've got to that point. And so that's where I was with mathematics. And um, so while I'm trying to figure out everything and trying to figure out what I want to do, I was um, reaching out to professors looking for graduate school positions. And I had decided that I wanted to study in the UK because I never had the opportunity to do a study abroad program. My family is very, very Scottish. My grandfather was the one that emigrated. So that was very close in our blood. And, um, and I'd always wanted to try living over there. Never had that chance. When I started looking into programs, because I didn't necessarily want to be a professor yet, I just wanted to get a PhD. And I had a lot of experience as a researcher, as an undergrad. Um, the UK programs are much shorter. You start, you don't do a master's degree. They tack on master's degrees at the end of their undergrad. And so I, um, but you have to be able to go in and sit down and they say, all right, there's your desk and there's your, you know, that's your supervisor and come out with a thesis in four years. And so you have to have that background experience to be able to do it. It's more like an apprenticeship, but I felt like I was in that position and it was great because PhD programs in the U.S. can be seven, eight years long for a astrophysics. Um, so that, that suited me great. So I was emailing people trying to find it. And I ended up finding uh, University of Glasgow, this professor Graham had on his website that he did radio astronomy. I'm like, score, I'm in. So I emailed him. I'm like, here's my background. Are you looking for PhD students? I'm applying to grad school right now. He's like, actually, I've transitioned into gravitational waves. And uh, but, you know, neutron stars are from radio astronomy. We could use a lot more people with an astrophysics background. We tend to have a lot of engineers right now. Uh, do you want to come do this? And me as desperate, get to live in Scotland, um, have this opportunity, have a, PhD, like, have a professor that wants me to join his program. I was like, sure, gravitational waves, let's find out what those are. Because no one knew what they were back then. Like they were such this obscure side of astrophysics, completely theoretical. No, they hadn't been discovered yet. Um, it was like this it's thing. Einstein, right? In the 19 something or other. Uh, yeah, 1915. Yeah. He basically did the math and just said, all right, if like something changes in space, like a star explodes or things crash into each other, that's going to send off ripples in, you know, in space time. And uh, 
they that's what we call gravitational waves but they're so small no one will ever detect them and it's just the small plucky group of scientists just never gave up on that and then a hundred years after that prediction they got the first detection of ripples in space-time from colliding black holes which is just objectively awesome (laughs) so crazy and the thing to wrap the brain around too is the fact that these two things these massive energies crashing into each other eke out these tiny little waves it's such a weird the idea of a black hole already is blow your brains out but that that much energy coming together would create something so tiny yeah and that's that's where we kind of have to make this cognitive shift because when we explain how gravity works with Einstein and general relativity and all of this, most people have seen the bowling ball on the trampoline analogy that you put a bowling ball on a trampoline, it sinks down. Then you can flick marbles. They'll orbit around just like planets going around the sun or moons going around planets. And that, and that's where that came from. And then that's the, I mean, it works. That's how we visualize this fabric that Einstein was working with. Um, But that is a little bit misleading. And that's why it's so hard to conceptualize how small gravitational waves are because that trampoline is very, very tight. It's like, imagine it being made out of Kevlar, you know, (laughs) like it's just a really tight, tight uh, um, fabric. That's very hard to move, very hard to stretch. Planets are massive. Black holes are very massive. But yeah, those waves that come off of it are just really tiny and very, very hard to see. So yeah, it's a it's certainly a challenge. <laughs> Explain how uh, something like the arms of the, the is it LIGO? Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was li- lig- LIGO or LIGO. I know it's L-I-G-O. Yeah. LIGO, yeah, it stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And so that's the that's kind of the group of people. There were there were attempts prior to this to detect these ripples in space-time. Um, but LIGO kind of came into being around the 80s and 90s was when they started thinking that this would be a, a good way to pr- to detect them. And what it is, is it's an interferometer. So if you've if you remember studying about like Mickelson Morley trying to detect the ether, it's that same concept. This idea of like, are we moving through something was what they were looking for. But what you do is you set up this sort of like L shaped detector and in the middle um, where the two lines meet, you have a laser and then that laser gets split and it goes down each arm. Now each arm is about, four or five kilometers long and then it hits a mirror it comes back recombines and goes into a photo detector and they're designed in such a way that um if a gravitational wave passes by it's going to make one arm slightly shorter one arm slightly longer so that laser beam that's been split is now going to travel different distances and when it comes back and recombines the waves are going to be slightly out of phase with each other so you get that like constructive and destructive interference if you remember that (laughs) and and uh, so it's like the crests and troughs are going to be slightly out of phase with each other so it's not going to look like the original laser beam and that's how they detect gravitational waves but those length changes that we're talking about, the, the five kilometers, we're talking one one thousandth the size of an atom changes. It's one part in like 10 to the 24. Stupidly small. <laughs> is it a constant from where it, where it originates? From the impact, is the size of the gravitational wave a constant? Because I'm... 
Gotcha. Yeah. So it will, it will decrease as it travels through space. It's energy. It starts out very, very strong and it does um, because it's propagating out in all directions. It's losing energy as it travels. It's still traveling at the speed of light. So it's speed isn't changing, um, but it is losing energy as it goes. And that's what allows us to kind of backtrace that based on the shape of the signal that we see that we can sort of deconstruct it, figure out what happened and how far away it was approximately. And how much energy it's lost. Pebble into the middle of a lake or something. That's yeah. Perfect. Perfect analogy. Yeah. It's going to, you're going to have higher crests if you're closer to it than you are further away. Does it disrupt anything in its path at its beginning point? That's so, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, That's something that people are still studying, but in terms of how we've always observed space, we're always observing electromagnetic radiation. So that whole spectrum of light and interacting with baryonic matter. Now, baryonic matter is essentially everything you see on the periodic table. It's, it's everything that we can know, see, touch. It's protons, neutrons, atoms, everything. Um, but that only makes up 4% of our universe. That's such a small fraction of our universe. So as far as gravitational waves disrupting or being slowed down by or being obscured by baryonic matter, no. They, they pass through. This, the ripples in space-time are not disrupted by that. How gravitational waves interact with things we don't understand, like dark matter... That's still, that's, that's part of what we're trying to study now. But that's what's so exciting is like, this really is a new way of doing astronomy. I, talking about this baryonic matter, spectroscopy, you know, studying the spectrum of electromagnetic light from atoms. All of that is such a small fraction of our universe, but it's like we've been looking with our eyes this whole time. And now with gravitational waves having been detected and being detected regularly, it's like we're hearing the universe for the first time. Now, it's not sound. Sound doesn't travel in space, but it's a totally different sense, as it were, for for being able to observe our universe. So it's opening up a whole new field, and we're going to learn some really cool stuff with it. I'm really, really excited, even though I'm not in it anymore. I live vicariously. (laughs) I left a year before they made their now Nobel Prize winning detection. So I listened to the Jarland. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) thanks grandpa (laughs) exactly oh man explain to um everyone about uh what space time means because i think that is people hear that combo and immediately start coming up with their own ideas so explain that one great um yeah so space time wasn't something that einstein came up with. This was sort of conceptualized in the mid-1800s by mathematicians first, thinking about our universe as having three spatial dimensions. So you, we can go forward, back, left, right, up, down. We see three dimensions. We can hold a cube, we can interact with it, and we can control it. We can move within that space in, in full control. But there's a fourth dimension that we call time. We progress. As you and I are having this conversation, time is stepping forward at one second per second, but we have no control over that. But when you combine these four dimensions, three in space and one in time, you can build this fabric. And that's what our our universe is. So that's where you really enter the mathematical side of things, because now you treat our universe as a combination of four dimensions now play with it mathematically. And that's where Einstein came in. Einstein said, okay, so we have this fabric, it's 
fairly complicated mathematics, but what happens if I introduce mass to it? So that's where you think about it now, the, the analogy of the bowling ball and the trampoline. The mathematicians kind of conceptualized this trampoline. And again, it's, we're shrinking down the dimensions just so our, our little brains can handle it. Um, but it works. It's what we need to do. They established that our universe is this trampoline. Einstein basically said, what if I put a bowling ball on it and saw how that fabric changed, how it, how it morphs and what happens to space and time when you do that. Um, and that. And that explained gravity. You know, there were a lot of holes in Newton's law of gravity. We still teach it because it covers 99% of stuff uh, that we can do experiments with and understand that you have two objects, um, they have masses that gravitational attraction between them goes down as they separate from each other, but it didn't explain what we saw in our universe, what we were able to observe. Telescopes were getting better. We were observing our solar system, starting to piece in things, you know, going from the 1700s into the 1800s. We were using telescopes regularly. We're mapping the patterns and, and starting to piece together our solar system better. And Mercury was not fitting the bill. It was being weird. As far as we knew from how massive the sun was, how massive Mercury was, it was moving in ways that it shouldn't based on Newton's law of gravity. There had to be like a third object there that was pulling on it. And they actually called it planet Vulcan, which I love. That <laughs> uh, this planet existed between Mercury and the sun that caused it caused this sort of tugging and we call it precession. It basically traced out a flower shape as it went around. Um, and that just didn't work with Newtonian gravity. And so that was kind of the driver that pushed Einstein to play with this a little bit and to play with the dynamics and see what happened if you used the mass of the sun and the mass of Mercury in this fabric of space-time. And then you can see that Mercury traces out a flower shape. And you can, I mean, you can play with that yourself. If you've played with, you know, these space-time gravitational wells at a science museum, you can make a marble trace out a flower shape around the middle pretty easily. Um, you just hit it at the right angle. It, its peak will change as it goes around. And that's what Mercury does. And so that's, that's how our understanding of gravity kind of evolved. And uh, yeah. Sorry, that was a really long explanation. No, explanation. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, I have long been fascinated by time and and how it operates in space. And I always think, well, is it really, you know, what time is it or is it where time is it? <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm looking at you, but for the time it takes for, well, we're in it right now at an on a screen, so I don't know if this really still stands true, but if I look at something across the room, it actually exists in a different time than I exist. I'm perceiving it at a, at a different point in time. It's insane. It's like the people that live on the mountain are growing older more rapidly than the people at the sea. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's once you start thinking about it, it can break your brain very fast. I, I think the, because too, like it's why teaching astronomy is so hard, and I love it. Like I, I loved teaching astronomy one hundred and one, and I'm actually teaching it now, like on Twitch and YouTube, because I just love teaching it. But one of the things you have to break is that exact concept, and we can kind of we've we've trained our brains kind of socially. Most people who you know have have 
learned a little bit of astronomy understand that we're seeing light from the stars as it was when they were sent. They're, you know, eight light years away, for example. So the light took eight years. We're seeing them as they were eight years ago. But it's hard to like apply that to our current life like you're talking about. So I like to use the sun with that because the sun is eight light minutes away. This The light that's hitting us now left the sun eight minutes ago. If the sun does something weird, we're not going to know about it for eight minutes. And that's kind of where you start to piece that together, but then you end up crying in the shower real fast. <laughs> I actually, uh, I said something to my dad the other day. I said, well, if the universe is expanding, we know this. Uh-huh. Uh, if, if something happened on the edge part, you know, whatever that means uh-huh. of the universe, that we wouldn't know hum- humanoids if they're around in another billion years. We wouldn't know. It would, in other words, yeah. it's already over before it's began. That breaks your brain. Yeah, because the the light is that information is leaving that event, and we're moving away from it, and it's trying to move. That information is moving towards us, and it'll just never reach us. And um, that's also that idea of like, well you know, these multiverse theory, there's some like multiverse theories that aren't really multiple universe theories. It's just the idea that our universe expanded in, in infinite directions, effective as we think. And, uh, you know, the other side of where the universe started, we're just never going to see because that light cone is different than our light cone. And we're just, yeah, it's, it's really hard to start thinking about. It's hard to conceptualize. (laughs) What happens I mean, does it just, it's just going to keep expanding, that's it? Or does it expand to a point where then it just eats itself like this, you know, I like to always bring up the snake eating its tail. And then yeah. is, it, is there a big bang again? Is this, is this a process that just keeps happening over and over again? Implosion, explosion. Yeah, and we, we don't know. That's, you know, the entire field of... Uh, that's okay. Um, the entire field of cosmology is basically trying to answer that question because how our universe is shaped will dictate what happens to it in the long run. We know what it's doing right now, and uh, but we're trying to figure out how flat our universe appears. And that's we have a lot of telescopes. I think it's the WMAP telescope is trying to figure out how flat our universe is. If it's flat, if it's the shape of it is basically equals zero, then it will expand. It'll keep doing its thing at infinitum. Like we just don't know. If it's open, if it's sort of a saddle-shaped universe, then that acceleration is going to accelerate and it will eventually tear itself apart in billions and billions and billions of years. As far as we know, because we're at this one flash in time, we don't necessarily know that. Um, Or it could be closed. It could be a sphere shape. We could just be tiny little ants on a massive beach ball. And, but if it's closed over time, the universe will, the expansion will start to slow down and then it will reverse. And that's that big crunch idea. And, but all of those are dependent on how our universe is shaped. And we, as far as we know, it's flat. We know it's flat to X percentage. We know the beach ball is not a beach ball yet. (laughs) I guess if that makes sense. Um, We, we, yeah, out to the horizon that we're comfortable with. We're like, okay, we, we think it's flat but we're going to keep building our instruments. We're going to get more sensitive. We're going to see if there is any sort of curve to it that could indicate if it's an open or closed universe. But as far as we know, it's just flat. Flat earthers probably love that. (laughs) I know. I cringe every time I talk about the universe being flat because it's like, (laughs) I'm not saying the earth is flat. (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, our universe is four dimensional. And as far as we know, it's a flat manifold. I'll just say, yeah, I don't know. There's no easy way to say it without throwing in stupid math. What is your uh, idea of the multiverse? Are you in it, not in it? Oh, I love multiverse theory. There's so many different Me kinds. <laughs> There's so many different kinds out there. This this idea that every decision you make spawns a universe where you make a different decision. That's like quantum multiverse theory. That's why we're all so um, tired. <laughs> right, exactly. I So I have two multiverse theories that I hold close to my heart. One is way more scientific. The scientific one that I really like is this dripping black hole universe theory. And it's this idea that a black hole, supermassive black hole at the center of galaxies, you know, it's absorbed a bunch, it's grown in size, it reaches this critical mass. And when it reaches, this is all theoretical, but when it reaches its critical mass, it essentially, within the black hole, gives birth to a new universe. That's the Big Bang in a new universe. I like that one. I love this one. And the cool thing, the reason I like it so much is because it does actually explain dark energy. Dark energy is this pressure. It's it's the thing that's pushing our universe apart, right? If you want to blow up a balloon, you're going to need to blow air into it. So as our universe is expanding, that dark energy is that thing that's pushing our universe apart. Um, so the dripping black hole theory is basically saying like, okay, in that mother black hole... The matter that's still, it's still existing. That universe still exists. It's still going on. It's its a merry way. But the stuff that's falling into that black hole is what's feeding the dark energy in our universe that's pushing our universe apart. So it's, it's like just black holes all the way down. Yeah, like three-dimensional chess. Yeah, so that's, yeah, exactly. So that's where I, I try to think of, try to visualize it as dripping black holes that you just have a black hole leading to another sheet that has a black hole in it that leads to another sheet and like that 3D chess platform idea. That's my Um, pump band name, dripping black holes. (laughs) So that's my, that's my pet favorite multiverse theory that I'm not super opposed to. I do (laughs) love the Mandela effect and the idea because legitimately For me, it was the Bernstein Bears, and I remember Shazam! I remember this. Yes, I'm so sorry to scream it at my audience just now, but yes, I remember it too. Sand! It was Sinbad. I was sitting in my parents' living room watching Sinbad be Shazam. I remember it absolutely 100%. 100%. And same with the Berenstein Bears. Like that, the, yes. that it's not stain. It's no, stain. It's the Berenstein Bears. Like, of course it is. So I, we're from the I'm same not, universe. Good we're from the you. same universe. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and even like when I first heard about this, I was so confused and I called my brother and I was just like, so you know that like Sinbad movie, right? And he's like, you mean Shazam? <laughs> This is the thing, and I'm, it's so, I'm not scientific about this at all. I just, I can't explain it. And so I do goof around that just at some point, our universes merged with this current non-Sinbad, non-Berenstein Bear universe, and, and we're stuck in it now, so. I blame CERN. 
It's certain songs. There you, <laughs> there you go. These weird, something happened, and I don't know when it converged, but our universe converged with this universe, and it... <laughs> So thank you. Welcome, fellow universe traveler. <laughs> it's maddening. It's um, it's maddening. Let's get into uh, black holes, which we'll never right. get out of again. Uh, firstly, a black hole. Wow, what a trip that is. So we have this thing, this the gravity in a black. I mean, you're you're the scientist. I'll let you describe what a black hole is. But in in it's teeny tiny, but hugely huge. It was, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am a doctor. <laughs> that was a great explanation. Yeah, it's the, it's so funny because black holes are so mind blowing. There are some misconceptions about them, and then there's just some little details that, like, actually in the big picture, don't matter so much, but still fun. So, black holes. There's two. I guess the best place to start first is what is a black hole? Black hole is an incredibly dense object that as far as we know, we can treat just as a single point. But that single point is very, very dense, meaning it has a very steep gravity well. When I talked about that bowling ball on the trampoline bending space-time down, that's the bowling ball's gravity well, that dip. If the bowling ball is more and more massive, that dip is going to get steeper and steeper. How steep that well is dictates how hard it is to escape it. That's our escape velocity. When we launch stuff off of the Earth, we are overcoming our escape velocity to crawl out of Earth's gravitational well. Um, so a black hole is to the point where your escape velocity is so high, that gravitational well is so deep, that to the speed you need to get out of it is greater than the speed of light. And nothing, we don't have anything that can go faster than the speed of light. So quick tangent on that. The speed of light comes from the idea that, yeah, we have these massive objects that are dipping space-time. As they move through space-time, it gets harder to move through the heavier they are. But if you get lighter and lighter, your gravitational well is going to be less and less steep. Eventually, you'll reach the point where you have no mass and you're not dipping space-time at all. This object still exists, but it has no mass, so it coasts in a straight line. And that's what we call the speed of light. Because photons, light particles, have no mass. So they travel on the surface of space-time in a straight line at the speed of light, at this fixed speed. And yeah, <laughs> um, but, but that's why it's important to realize why nothing can go faster than the speed of light. That you have this, this limit is because at that point you have no mass. And we haven't discovered or have figured out a way to have negative mass. Um, so that's why nothing can escape a black hole because the fastest thing we have is the speed of light and nothing can go faster than that. And in order to get out of a black hole, you got to go faster than that. Um, Which is why giant planets and things can get sucked in or stars or, or whatnot because they just don't have the, the velocity to keep from being gobbled. Right. And, and so when you're, when you're coming upon a black hole, it really is just a gravity well. It's just a gravity well. It's not like a vacuum, right? It's not sucking things into it necessarily. Stuff is just falling into it. But you have these zones as you get to a black hole. You have this green zone that, you know, if a black hole is there, you could be orbiting it just fine. If our sun turned into a black hole, 
other than the lack of sunlight, <laughs> but if it just stayed its mass, um, we would orbit it just fine. We wouldn't suddenly get sucked in. We would just continue orbiting it because we would see that we would be part of that gravitational well, but we'd be well outside that point of no return. Oh, very interesting, because I know we have Sagittarius A, is that right? Uh-huh. That's our black yeah. hole in our Milky Way. In the center of our Milky Way. Yeah, so that's so that brings, we're brings on me... an arm, right? We're... We're on right. Yeah. So yeah, that that's a good point. So let let's break down really fast. Like we have this idea of the cosmological address where we have star systems. We are a planet around our star. Um, so that's our the solar system is our star system. The Milky Way galaxy is the galaxy we live in, and galaxies are made up of billions of stars. Um, all possible, some most of them possibly with their own star system. Um, then. Galaxies are kind of trapped in galaxy clusters. We share a galaxy cluster with us and the Andromeda galaxy, which is another big spiral flat galaxy, and a handful of smaller galaxies that are just clouds of stars. They don't have as much structure to them, but they're all, we're all sort of gravitationally bound together. So you have galaxy clusters, and then those galaxy clusters make up our, our universe. So you go from planet to star system to galaxy to galaxy cluster to the universe effectively. And you could think about that like, all right, I have my house, my city, my state, country. That's sort of how you're building it out. Now, when we talk about black holes, black holes really fall currently into two categories. Black holes form from supermassive stars that explode. They reach the end of their life. And because they're so massive, when they run out of fuel, when they've sort of fused everything that they can in the center, they don't have anything more to fuse. uh, There's nothing holding it up anymore. And so it collapses in on itself. And when it collapses in on itself, you get this huge explosion called a supernova. What's left behind can fall into being a neutron star, which is just this super dense, weird object of neutrons, just pure neutrons that are all clumped together as tight as you can go. Or it could be even more massive than that. And once it gets more massive, that neutron star can't hold up against itself. And that's where we get a black hole. Um, So those are what we call stellar mass black holes. They come from stars exploding and dying. And not all stars are going to do that, just the really, really massive ones. Then we have also discovered really massive, we, not imaginatively, supermassive black holes at the center of big spiral galaxies. So part of astrophysics is trying to draw the thread between them because we know what causes a solar mass black hole. This idea is about, you know, it's just left over from a star. And then we also see these really massive black holes at the center of galaxies. And the thought is just, as our universe evolves and stars are born and die and born and die, and it's just the circle of life that we have, that black holes will run into each other. And when they run into each other, they merge and they make a slightly bigger black hole. And then that slightly bigger black hole will meet another one and they'll eat each other and uh, eventually migrate to the center of a galaxy. And then, you know, as they've sort of got more massive, they're just falling into the center of this galaxy. And that allows them, um, that, that's how they end up in the center. Now, this is just from piecing together what we have. This is why being an astrophysicist is so hard, because we just have to take the puzzle pieces that the universe gives us and try to figure it out. The detection of colliding black holes from LIGO, the gravitational waves that we saw from that, 
was a huge piece of that puzzle. So we've seen the black hole in the center of galaxies, and we've seen that um, from stars orbiting nothing. We can observe, as you said, it's in Sagittarius, the, the constellation Sagittarius from our perspective. We look very, very closely. It's toward the center of our galaxy, and you see these stars whipping around nothing. But we know how massive those stars are, so we can figure out what that mass is in the center. We know there's something there. How we have traditionally seen solar mass black holes, the ones that are left behind, um, have been because they've been in a binary star system. So you have two stars. One has died, turned into a black hole. The other either hasn't died or didn't turn into a black hole. And that material is falling into the black hole and it's hot as it's falling in, it's heating up and it's giving off light in the x-rays. And so that's how we've like, quote, seen black holes before is not so much the, the hole itself, but the stuff that's falling into it. Um, so that's why LIGO is so important because it helps us see black holes we're seeing them collide, but we're now seeing them in a mass range that we haven't seen before because enough time has passed that all that material from like, if it had a star, star companion or whatever star system that this star had when it turned into a black hole has long been eaten up. And now there's no signature. There's no way to see it. So we don't know how many black holes are just hanging out there. And that's why LIGO is so important because it allows us to actually, quote, see black holes that have long eaten their star system or other stars. There's no electromagnetic signature. There's no light coming off of it. Um, but we've now seen them merging. So that's making us think, yeah, that, that logical path of small black holes eating each other, growing into bigger black holes is how you get to the supermassive black hole at the center of galaxies. That's your black <laughs> hole primer for this. <laughs> it's interesting to think about a binary star system that has, you know, gobbled up one of its suns, and then you think, what about all the life that might have existed on that particular <laughs> planet? One day they're just, you know, doing their bleep, 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 blop thing, and then... Psh, their sun is gone and then they die. And that's weird. Right. Well, it's interesting. I Because when we talk about star systems, it's, it's hard to for us to conceptualize the scale of time that we talk about this stuff happening. Because when stars run out of hydrogen, they still have other stuff in them, but they've run out of hydrogen. They've fused all of that together. Um, once that, that happens, they start expanding and the star turns into a red giant. So red giants only are kind of for a hun hundreds of thousands of years, whereas it's a normal star's life scale would be 10 billion. Like our star will last for 10 billion years, but it's last 100,000-ish order of magnitude here. Um, maybe million, 100 million years, maybe. <laughs> I might've screwed up the order of magnitude. If I did, I apologize. <laughs> I can only hold so many numbers in my head, but... It's a small fraction of the star's life cycle. So when we think about star systems and that we've been able to observe planets around other stars, we know those are out there. By the time it's ready to explode and supernova, it will have been a red giant for a while and it will have expanded and possibly already eaten all those planets. So there would be some warning. Now, when our star becomes a red giant, Titan, like Saturn's moon, might not be a terrible place to live. So we would still, you know, get to witness the end of the, the yeah, star. Yeah, one would hope eventually we'll find new planets to ruin. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs>
Just challenge if, accepted, right? I know. <laughs> if if gravity is a rule that follows particular pattern, it does what it does. No take backsies. <laughs> as a Milky Way, as our galaxy is operating in its absoluteness, is the entire universe operating in its absoluteness in tandem? In other words, is there such a thing as the center of the universe? One, two, three. <laughs> good, good question. Yeah, it's, again, it's, it's so hard because of that time issue. The fact that we can observe what our galaxy, and thankfully the Andromeda galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy helps a lot. And we do have galaxies close enough to us that we can kind of extrapolate what the rest of the universe is doing now. Even when we look really, really far away, we are looking back in time. But we can guess like, okay, that star that we're observing from 13 billion years ago, or that galaxy, that has now evolved and is off doing its own thing and might now be a galaxy that looks quite like ours. Um, so the idea of a center of a galaxy or the center of our universe is really hard to conceptualize. The best analogy, and I think the analogy that astrophysicists cannot get past with good reason, because I've never come up with a better one, is the raisin bread analogy. When you talk about raisin bread, think about every raisin being its own galaxy or galaxy cluster. As that bread expands, ignore the edge. The edge will break you. Think about inside the bread. As it's expanding, every raisin sees every other raisin moving away from it. But every raisin is not the center of the bread, right? It just appears like everything's moving away from it. But you go to the next raisin, everything looks like it's moving away from it. Next raisin, everything looks like it's moving away from it. So there's no necessarily center there. It just looks to everyone like everything's moving away from themselves. So sorry if that broke just, your brain, but it helps. I'm never going <laughs> to sleep again, just in general. It's just fine. I have lots to think about. <clears throat> is, is there a conception of being on the edge of an expanding universe? Is it in theory, obviously possible to get to the tip top edge and look over and if you could what would you see in theory good question yeah all all in theory <laughs> in um theory. because when you think about the big so my my initial answer is just is no but it's more a sense of like when you think about the big bang there is not necessarily right it started as a single point and it expanded out but that expanding out is where it starts to get hard to think of. Because if you're thinking about the edge, right, then you'd basically be riding that wave. You'd be riding, you'd be on that edge. And as the universe is expanding, you're just, what are, what are you expanding into? And so that's where that idea of an edge of the universe kind of starts to break down. That it's more like we're all expanding together. That there was this great heat that happened. Once this heat and this explosion of energy happened, all the particles are experiencing that together at the same time. They're expanding out. Our universe is very hot at that time. It was just this sludge of this, you know, whatever baryonic matter we know and whatever else was there. Um, that started to cool off. All that baryonic matter started to come together and become hydrogen atoms and then, you know, slowly merge and become stars. And then we get, 
you know, helium and all the other elements from that. But you can see why it's hard when you think about it that way, it's hard to think of there being an edge to it. Like, what are you expanding into? It was just, and that that's usually where people start to cry. When I yeah. use it. <laughs> Actually starts to hurt a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a student who hated this. I, and I like to joke, day one of Astronomy 101, it's just every astrophysicist lives in a constant state of existential crisis. Yeah. We just, yeah. Yeah. We, we mean nothing. Time means nothing. It's all just a blip of nothingness. (laughs) And I had a student who hated that. He hated every aspect of this talking about the, the universe being a sheet of space time. He was like full on Brad Pitt seven, like what's under the sheet. Like, what are we expanding into? You can't just get, and it's like, I get it. I get it. But we don't know. And our, our little brains just can't conceptualize this. It's so hard for us to, to really understand. So the best we can do is just know, spout nonsense about trampolines and raisin bread and just kind of hope that we get it about 80%. Um, it's my understanding that from the Big Bang, if you looked at, at everything as, as if it were in... Um, do you remember when you were little and you had the, the, the weird globe that had all the plant life in it and it was growing and doing its thing? You never had to water it. It just was what it was. <laughs> yeah. So the universe, and if I'm, I don't know if I'm right about this, but from my understanding is that everything that is, was, and everything that was, is, and there is nothing new because as something is created somewhere in the universe, something else is dying. Like how we are made of stardust. We are made up of 14 billion year old somethings. Yeah. So there isn't, there's never anything new. Yeah. What? We're, I know it's a, it's this whole idea that our universe itself is an entirely closed system. System. Yeah. yeah. That you have conservation of energy, you have conservation of matter and conservation of momentum. If I push something that way, then somewhere something has to counteract that. And that's all what you define your system to be. And it's horrible. (laughs) But honestly, like, honestly, this is why I personally am so much happier applying all of this to science fiction. Like, this is why, because it just reached a point where I was like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I don't care. Like, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore. So I'm just going to write cool stories <laughs> and share multiverse theories. Right. Other people. The best of theoretical physics, science fiction. Yeah. That's exactly what it, it does. It, I, neuroscience is a bit of a hobby of mine. I enjoy learning about the brain. Again, it is a universe that we have barely scratched the surface. And I liken yeah. a lot of, of this to the brain which is not surprising considering what we are. Yeah. But I think about how, how, how the brain perceives everything, how the unconscious versus the conscious, even how we take in light and yeah. how long it takes for that to reach our brain and how our brain is already responding before our conscious mind responds. All of that to me is echoed in the universe. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's amazing though. And I, I, um, one of the things I really love too, that has always, it's just one of those neat things that for me, I, other people, 
you know, we'll interpret it separately. But um, the fact that the superstructure of our universe, if you really zoom out and look at how all the galaxy clusters are all shaped and how they're distributed through our universe, it looks a hell of a lot like neuron distribution in our brain. You get these packets, you get these threads, and it looks, you can't help but see the comparison between those. I just, I think it's cool. Um, obviously you can, you can go a lot with that. You can go, you know, more religious or more, you know, philosophical or any of that. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. Or the eye, uh, when you look at the eye up close and to see the nebulas within the eye. Exactly. It's, it's mind blowing. I love it. I love it. it. (laughs) Okay. I don't want to take up your entire day, although I I really do want to take up your entire day. um, Really, let's, this is going to be funny, but really quickly, let's cover wormholes. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. So let's go back to the sheet. <laughs> let's go back to the sheet of space time. Um, we talked about the universe being flat. And as far as we know, it's flat. But that's not to say that there may be bumps and ridges and folds throughout that. The analogy I use for this is toilet paper. You take a bunch of toilet paper, crumple it all up, lay it out on the ground. You can lay it out flat but it still could be folded over in sections. It can still have bumps and ridges. Overall, it looks flat, but that's not to say you might have these little local differences at that. What wormholes do is say, okay, if I want to travel from one point on the toilet paper to the other, then I have to travel on that whole surface. Best case, I'm moving at the speed of light and space is very, very big. That's going to take me a really, really long time. Um, But if I'm on a fold, what if I just punched through? down through to the other side, builds a tunnel through that. And that's really what a wormhole is. And mathematically, wormholes are no problem. They have also been called Einstein-Rosen bridges. There's other sort of topological, you know, mathematical definitions people have come up with to, to explain ways that having a tunnel that shortcuts space-time uh, doesn't break any laws of physics. Problem is, is that we've just never seen any. And we don't necessarily know what to look for with that because the, that topological solution that you get looks a lot like a black hole. And so from a distance, it, you're, you know, it's not, they're kind of hard to distinguish from each other. So we don't necessarily know, could it be that black holes maybe turn into, is there some black holes that have maybe punched through and became wormholes? All of those are kind of interesting questions. But that's why wormholes are so great in science fiction, because they don't break any science. We just haven't seen any. And um, they are a way to travel faster than the speed of light. And so, yeah. Well, does gravity also behave appropriately within a wormhole then? Because how would a, how would a person withstand a wormhole? Yeah, that's the question. So how could you actually travel through a wormhole? If it is topologically no different to a black hole, then it's no good. No bueno for us because that there's a whole thing called spaghettification. As you start to reach the black hole, when you go from that green zone to the yellow zone to the red zone, yeah, the gravity at your feet is going to be a lot bigger than your head and you're going to just get spaghettified and stretched out and turned into pure energy because your atoms can't hold up against each other. Not good stuff. So yeah, we haven't solved that (laughs) aspect of how we could actually travel through a a wormhole. But it is important to note that if you were able to overcome the that gravitational shear 
as you're getting into a black, uh, into a wormhole, if you were able to somehow overcome that through some technology that you have, whatever, uh, warp, protecting yourself in a bubble of space time, there's lots of fun stuff that we can do with that. Gravity shouldn't be any different. Uh, once you're in that tunnel and once you're out on the other side, once you're out on the other side, then you're, you know, in the same position you were beforehand. Space time should be completely normal. Uh, there is some fun stuff you can play with this with, uh, space-time and like Star Trek, for example, because uh, if people have watched Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the entire premise is that it's next to a stable wormhole. And uh, within that wormhole exist these aliens that experience time very different to how we experience time in quote, normal space. The way I like to conceptualize this is if you're picturing that fabric of space-time being folded over, the tunnel is gonna be vertical to the rest of space because you're shortcutting it. So you're perpendicular, you're pointing in a different direction. And so your fabric of space-time is gonna be differently aligned to quote, normal space-time. So you could theoretically, if you were able to exist within that wormhole, uh, experience time differently to people outside of that wormhole. But that is just one sci-fi example you know you also have things like stargate that are essentially wormholes so you've connected two points in space time and just put this hole between them this tunnel between them it's a tunnel but it's like an instantaneous tunnel it's just a gate that you go through um and they they visualize it differently throughout the series i know sometimes they go in and it looks like a doctor who style wormhole um other times they just jump right through and uh so this idea of being able to exist within that is um is uh Hard to think about. <laughs> okay, you're on a debate team. You have given pro for the first couple minutes, and then the con for the next couple minutes. Uh, <laughs> aliens on Earth, go. Aliens on Earth. Oh man. So pro being aliens have been to Earth and are here and have visited us. Oh man. Uh, okay. The pro is that. Um, the universe is weird and unexpected and there are all there the likelihood that we're not alone is very very high um did i say that right there there's got to be aliens out there um if aliens have been able to reach us then they have the technology then they have great technology because space is very very big so if they've been able to reach us it stands to reason that they would be able to reach us and interact with us in a way that we cannot comprehend just because they would have had to have overcome great technical challenges to even get here in the first place. And that's so assuming that's my... they're humanoids even. Right. Assuming they're humanoids, assuming they exist in the four dimensional space time that we understand and perceive. I mean, we can get crazy out there. You know, there's a whole Voyager episode where there's a species that cloaks themselves in time by just being Ooh. like one second out of normal time. And I love that. So yeah, cool stuff. So that would be my, my pro side. I also big X-Files fan, like give me government conspiracy aliens any day of the week. I love it. So I'm not opposed to putting on my Mueller hat and, and going in that route. <laughs> Um, okay, so putting on my Scully hat, uh, th there is this thing called the Fermi paradox that basically says, and that's kind of the, what you're asking, that um, if there are so many alien species out there, why haven't we seen them? We're seeing a lot of star systems. We're, we know people have been around for a long time. We know we've been around for a really long time. We're only now reaching this technology. But as you said, this 
the universe has a ton of, we are made of star stuff. There had to have been stars. Why are there no alien species out there? Um, It's a little bit unfortunate, uh, but the answer that I choose for the Fermi paradox is basically um, you are more likely to get killed by space than you are to reach the technological capability to visit other species. Space is very bad. And there's one thing in particular called a gamma ray burst, which is a high, high energy flash of gamma radiation that can come from multiple sources, one being stars exploding, another being neutron stars running into each other, or neutron star and a black hole running into each other. Huge flash of gamma ray burst. And um, that will wipe out a civilization. Uh, we do think that we do think evidence points to one of our extinction events on Earth seems to have been caused by a gamma ray burst. It's called the Ordovician Silurian extinction. And all evidence points to that being a gamma ray burst extinction event. And so the idea is, is essentially when you think of gamma ray bursts, our star system, it's just like living in a hundred year floodplain and it's going to take you 200 years to get the technology to go reach another civilization. You're just not going to make it. You're going to get wiped out before and the odds are against you. So that's the, that's the sad example of why aliens haven't talked to us yet. Uh, We're not there, but that's why other ones, another great, more philosophical reasoning for the Fermi paradox is just like, I don't walk down the street and try to teach ants English. (laughs) At this point, we're the ants. Absolutely. And if time is, as we know, not if, we know that time operates differently in different places. So who's to say that a billion years from now, where we are, which which is where they are now, they haven't figured it all out. Fuck that. Exactly. I love that. (laughs) So tell everybody, you have so many different wonderful things going on. Explain to people how they can find you in all those great places, including you have some uh, sort of pay-per-view situations too, right? So, yeah, so I've got, um, so yeah, you can find me online most easily on Twitter is at Dr. Aaron Mac, D-R-E-R-N-M-A-C. That's also my handle on Instagram and it's also my handle on Twitch. Uh, Twitch is where I do my live streaming. And actually this month I'm pivoting my live streaming a little bit. Um, So I have, uh, I put some of my recordings on YouTube. If you just search for Aaron McDonald or Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe is the name of the channel, um, where I talk about the science behind science fiction. Um, I also post my Astronomy 101 classes and I also do my um, Star Trek Sunday brunch where I talk about Star Trek with a first time viewer and it's really really fun. Uh, Not scientific at all. So wonderful. I love that. (laughs) It's really fun. We're in Deep Space Nine right now so it's great. Um, So yeah and you can catch the live streams of those on Twitch as well. Um, and then I also have a Audible original series called The Science of Sci-Fi. Um, if you search for that, it was in partnership with The Great Courses. So it's an audio, Audible only, um, but it's sort of just a quick, I think it's under four hours, kind of almost everything that we've talked about here. Multiverse theory, time travel, little primer on Newtonian gravity versus Einstein gravity. And um, yeah, so people can definitely check that out and then find my website too, drarenmack.com. And I'll put all the links on HeyHumanPodcast.com as well to make life easier for everyone, no matter where they are in time and who they are in time. (laughs) And space. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, You are awesome. So excited that we get to have this conversation. And uh, again, it would be easy to talk to you for a very long time. Yes, indeed. Yes. When the, the great covid of of 2020 is over we get to we'll meet in real life and you know 
all that good stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Live long and prosper. Bye.